0: No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Mueller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill, and we have a great show for you today. But first, I wanted to let everyone know that I'm pulling Mueller She Wrote, The Daily Beans, and the MSW Book Club off Spotify to protest the disinformation that continues to be spread by their flagship show, the Joe Rogan experience, and because of Spotify's weak-sauce response to public concern. Uh, Now, this is a risk for us because we aren't a juggernaut like Rogan is, but I believe that doing the right thing is always more important than money, which is a lesson we hope Spotify learns as well. Now, if you've been on the fence about supporting Mueller, She Wrote, the book club, and the Daily Beans, Now would be a great time to pledge. It is just three bucks a month for all three shows, which you'll get ad-free premium feeds for, plus a lot of other great bonus content. And it's because of patrons that we're able to pull our content from Spotify. So thank you very much. You can still listen to all three shows for free on any other podcast platform, and I hope you will. Now with that, I have a lot of news to get to. So let's jump in with just the facts. All right. Interesting blast from the past. Natalia Veselnitskaya has been accused of an elaborate new plot to pervert the course of justice. Veselnitskaya, the pro-Kremlin lawyer who attended the notorious 2016 Trump Tower meeting with Junior, Kushner, and Manafort, to name a few, allegedly doctored official documents, again, according to leaked files viewed by the Daily Beast. The lawyer, who was tasked with pushing one of President Vladimir Putin's most cherished propaganda campaigns in the U.S., that's the Anti-Magnitsky Act, Uh, has already been indicted on obstruction of justice charges by prosecutors for the Southern District of New York. New documents allege that Veselnitskaya or her team may have employed a similar strategy to tamper with supposedly independent evidence submitted to a court in a related case in Switzerland, where where Veselnitskaya's clients, Denis Katsiv and his company Prevazon, were at the center of a massive tax fraud and money laundering investigation that was dropped last year. Quote, Natalia Vazanetskaya, the lawyer of a major suspect in the Swiss case, has been editing the testimony directly obstructing justice in the Swiss criminal case. And that's a document laying out new evidence submitted to the Federal Criminal Court of Switzerland, which has been seen by the Daily Beast. The court filing by Hermitage Capital, that's Bill Browder, who the Russian government blames for the fraud, by the way, Includes emails obtained by the Dossier Center, which is an anti-corruption organization based in London, which appear to show that formal evidence from the Russian state in the case against Veselnitskaya's client was not independently produced, as Moscow had claimed. The metadata on one crucial Word document handed over by the Prosecutor General's office in Moscow shows that one of the editors of the report was an account in the name of Veselnitskaya N.V., Metadata on a second Word document, also obtained by the Dossier Center, showed that the file was authored by someone called Natalia and then edited by an account called Mitusova N.A. That's Natalia Alexandrovna Mitusova, and that's the name of Veselnitskaya's stepdaughter, by the way, and former colleague for when they both worked at the law firm, Camerton Consulting. Now, the second document, seen by the beast, was the translation of a supposedly independent investigator's report commissioned by Russian officials which became a key piece of evidence in the case. Neither Veselnitskaya nor Mitasova responded to a request for comment. U.S. prosecutors indicted Veselnitskaya in January 2019 over similar allegations. They claimed she secretly worked with the Russian prosecutor general's office to draft a document which was shared with the U.S. under the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. The document in question purported to show that an independent Russian investigation had found Veselnitskaya's client had nothing to do with the money laundering they had been accused of in a New York court. <laughs> but U.S. prosecutors obtained emails that showed Veselnitskaya was in touch with one of the officials in the department via email. Examination of the word documents they shared showed that Veselnitskaya made crucial revisions to the document using the track changes feature. Just, you know, track changes with my timestamp and name stamp on it. Totally legal, totally cool, and we remember this. And that document with Veselnitskaya's changes was submitted to the U.S. prosecutors by the authorities in Moscow, proving just how closely the Trump Tower lawyer was working with the Russian state, with the Kremlin. Now, when it emerged that Don Jr., Kushner, and Manafort uh, met with Veselnitskaya in 2016 to discuss damaging information she might have on Clinton, it was claimed that the Moscow lawyer had no ties to Putin's government, but we know differently. In fact, she was pushing one of her pet projects, the overturning of the Magnitsky Act, Browder's Magnitsky Act. That's the anti corruption legislation signed by Obama in 2012, who was named in honor of Sergei Magnitsky, who uncovered that $230 million fraud before he was jailed by the Russian authorities and murdered. The Magnitsky Act placed sanctions on people who uh, are accused of covering up that fraud and laundering the proceeds, as well as providing a mechanism to sanction corrupt individuals in Russia and beyond. Now, Magnitsky style legislation has since been passed in the European Union and eight countries around the world most recently including Australia. Kotzev and his company Prevazon have been accused by U.S. prosecutors of helping launder the proceeds of that fraud, which they deny. The Swiss authorities froze assets worth around $8 million related to the alleged fraud a decade ago, but they made a decision to return the majority of the money last year despite full knowledge that their investigation had been compromised by Russia. A consultant with the Swiss Federal Prosecutor's Office, named in court as Victor K, was sacked, After allegations of bribery and unauthorized clandestine behavior, which included secret meetings with Veselnitskaya, oops, the former anti-corruption policeman was also helicoptered to a bear hunting trip in Russia's Far East. He took another luxury trip to Russia, along with Swiss prosecutor Patrick Lamont and Switzerland's attorney general, Michael Lauber. Oops. The three of them were photographed enjoying a boat trip on the Baikal with senior Russian officials. What is it with hunting trips and boat trips and the Russians... Now, despite the utter humiliation of the Swiss justice system, the court still decided to return the Russian money in a ruling in July of 2021. New allegations of Russian interference are likely to be submitted as part of an ongoing appeal against that ruling. If the appeal is successful, the funds would not be returned. Now, it is already alleged in the court papers submitted on January 17, 2022, first reported by Swiss newspaper Tagas Anziger, that Veselnitskaya edited the transcript of an interview carried out in Moscow by Victor K. and Lemon, which took place at the prosecutor general's office. That official transcript was handed to the Swiss prosecutors. The submission to the court was made by Hermitage Capital, which is owned by Bill Browder. The Russian government has claimed without foundation that Browder and Magnitsky were really the men behind the fraud. Of course, we know that whole story. You can go back to episode, what, six, the Magnitsky Act? Of uh, Muller, she wrote, Now, further emails uncovered by Dossier Center now appear to show that someone with the name of Veselnitskaya's stepdaughter may also have been involved in the drafting of another document. This one was purported to contain the independent testimony of an expert witness in Russia who argued it was impossible to trace the allegedly laundered funds which found their way into Prevazon Holdings accounts. Hmm. The supposedly independent testimony of Edward Shakarov was sent for translation by Veselnitskaya's assistant in October of 2015. And that's according to emails and metadata on the resulting document was edited by someone using the name of Veselnitskaya's stepdaughter, Midasova. A copy of that translated testimony was then sent to the Swiss authorities by Russian officials in December of that year, submitted as actual shit, just like they did to us in 20, you know, before that, when she was convicted in 2019. This evidence appeared to really strike a chord with the Swiss authorities since the prosecutor's closing order mentioned Sherikov's name 15 times. Now, a federal judge is expected to rule soon on whether the case should be reopened and sent back to the prosecutors for further investigation. Oh, didn't think we'd hear from Veselnitskaya again, but here she is. Now, also in the news, as if the Durham indictment of lawyer Michael Sussman for lying, quote unquote, to Jim Baker, FBI general counsel, by the way, uh, if, if as, as if this wasn't shoddy enough, this indictment, Durham really stepped in it last week on January 28th. Durham filed the following supplemental in this case, in the Sussman indictment. After reviewing the special counsel's office public filing, Department of Justice, Office of Inspector General brought to my attention, based on a review of its records, that about four years ago on February 9th, 2018, in connection with another criminal investigation I was conducting, an OIG special agent who was providing some support in that investigation informed Assistant United uh, States Attorney working with Durham that the OIG had requested custody of a number of FBI cell phones. OIG records reflect that among the phones requested was one of the two aforementioned cell phones of then-FBI General Counsel Jim Baker. OIG records further reflect that on February 12, 2018, a few days later, the OIG special agent had a conference call with members of the investigative team, including me, Mr. Durham, during which the cell phones likely were discussed. Likely. OIG records also reflect that the OIG subsequently obtained the then-FBI General Counsel's cell phones on or about February 15th, two days later. Special Counsel Durham has no current recollection of that conference call, nor does Special Counsel Durham currently recall knowing about the OIG's possession of the former FBI General Counsel Jim Baker's cell phones before January 2022. I forgot. On January 5th, 2022... Members of Special Counsel Durham's current investigative team conducted a conference call with the FBI's Inspection Division in an effort to obtain information about call log data from the former FBI General Counsel in this investigation into Jim Baker. We wanted to get, you know, get on the phone with the OIG and said, "Hey, do you have any phone stuff?" Subsequent to that call, the next day, personnel from the FBI's Inspection Division informed me via email that the OIG currently was maintaining custody of jim baker's cell phones on january 7th the next day 2022 special counsel's office requested information concerning the cell phones from the oig so they could make appropriate disclosures in accordance with rules etc and the oig provided the requested information on january 10th three days later the prosecution team is produced to the defense today oig forensic reports of the aforementioned two cell phones moreover at the request of the special counsel's office oig conducted additional forensic examination of those cell phones earlier this month and on the evening of January 26, 2022, provided special counsel's office with those additional completed forensic reports, which will produce to the defense after we look at them. <laughs> after reviewing the OIG's records from the aforementioned criminal investigation, referenced in paragraph three above, special counsel also recently requested and will review additional cell phones in the OIG's possession for discoverable materials. So allow me to paraphrase. <clears throat> What Durham just submitted to the court. So hey, Judge, I uh, want to hear something funny. <laughs> well, funny, interesting, not funny, ha ha, right? More no funny, peculiar. So get this: in 2018, Trump had me investigating Baker, who he hated because he was one of the guys Comey shared his contemporaneous notes with back in the day when he was trying to obstruct the investigation into Flynn, right? See, but so anyhow, I was investigating Baker for Donald because he totally weaponized the DOJ, and during that investigation. There were two cell phones belonging to Baker that I got, and I was trying to get the call log data so I could prove Baker was the leaker and a liar to the press, which he wasn't, and whatever. But anyhow, I totally forgot about those phones, even though I asked for him back in the day. And maybe uh, they might have some exculpatory evidence on them. I don't know. I'm gonna review them, so I figures I should tell you about it, Your Honor. What a tool. I put beans on it before, I'll put beans on it now. The Sussman indictment and the entire Durham probe is trash. All right, up next from Gerstein at Politico. A federal appeals court signaled Wednesday that it is inclined to give journalists another chance to argue for the public release of the Justice Department's basis for obtaining a search warrant in 2020 for Senator Richard Burr's phone as part of an insider trading investigation. Again, they are the, the federal appeals court has signaled they're inclined to give journalists another chance to get the public release of the Justice... Barr's Justice Department's basis for the search warrant for Burr's phone. Do you remember when that all that shit went down and I said, they are going after Burr. They are going after him. They've subpoenaed his phones. The Department of Justice and Barr and Trump are going after Burr because of Burr's, you know, release of the, you know, five volumes of the, you know, Senate's thing in the Mueller report. I mean, he... he They were going after him politically. He was a political enemy to them, and they wanted Marco Rubio to be in charge of that committee instead of Burr. Anyway, Justice Department officials informed Burr in January of 2021, a year ago, that the criminal investigation was closed. But last May, Chief Judge Beryl Howell on the Federal District Court in Washington issued a sweeping opinion denying the Los Angeles Times' request to see what justified the unusual search warrant aimed at the senator. It's unusual. That search warrant is weird. Now, during arguments on the issue Wednesday, this past Wednesday, all three D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judges assigned to the newspaper's appeal criticized Howell's ruling for failing to address key factors established for disputes about public access to court records. Quote, you're talking about activities of a sitting senator. You're talking about alleged insider trading by members of Congress. Congress, which is very much in the public discourse. That's Judge Greg Katzis. An appointee of Trump, by the way. There's not even a sentence about it. Quote, we can't even find a sentence in the analysis section acknowledging and discussing the public interest in disclosure. That's Judge Patricia Millett, who was appointed by Obama. It only addresses one side of the privacy argument in this case. Judge Judith Rogers said Howell's decision denying access articulated the factors and made a conclusory statement that any right of access had been overcome by privacy interests and the government's law enforcement interests but never really explained why. She was appointed by Bill Clinton. She says, I think our circuit precedent has strongly indicated that's not enough. We don't have an analysis. So according to news reports, the search warrant was reportedly issued as part of an investigation into whether Burr, then chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, used information from official briefings on the perils of the coronavirus to make stock trades that earned money or saved him from the major market turndown in early 2020. And if he did that, we should know. But I think they were doing it for other reasons, obtaining his phone records and getting search warrants. While the Justice Department never formally acknowledged the search, unnamed law enforcement officials did confirm the end of the investigation was last year. However, at Wednesday's arguments, Justice Department lawyer Elizabeth Donello described those statements as unauthorized disclosures. Current Justice Department lawyer said those statements about the ending of the investigation were unauthorized disclosures. Donello ultimately conceded that some of the things the appeals judges were searching for in Howell's opinion just weren't there. The opinion is what it is, said Donello, who is assigned to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington. The court nonetheless is presumed to have understood these interests. There's nothing to indicate the court here didn't understand the law. Talking about Howell. At one point, Millett suggests the government's argument was that even if Howell didn't explain the factors applying to the Burr filings, simply invoking them was good enough for government work. Quote, unquote, Danilo, a deputy chief in the U.S. attorney's appellate division, took umbrage of that language. We in the government try to turn square corners, so I do not accept that analogy. Hal's opinion on the Burr-related filings prompted alarm from news organization and transparency advocates because it seemed to suggest that search warrant records in cases where no charges are filed should remain secret forever. That conflicts with the longstanding practices of many federal, state, and local courts where such records are routinely unsealed after a specified amount of time or once an investigation is concluded, and this one was. Of course, DOJ is arguing, "Eh, yeah, but those were undisclosed statements, which is weird. And the decision also seemed to be important because the practices of law enforcement agencies, which have traditionally been more secretive to the courts, uh, have typically been more open. Now, at one point on Wednesday, Kotsis also seemed to blur those lines. There's pretty strong tradition that... The government doesn't release materials like that, he said. Now, The lawyers for the Times, Katie Townsend of the Report Committee for Freedom of the Press, insisted that there is actually a strong tradition of public access to search warrants. Townsend also said the government's insistence that the Burr probe was secret was at odds with the Justice Department's comments to the media and with Burr's own statement announcing the closure of the probe. The cat was well out of the bag, she said. Now it appears that the part of the government's opposition to unsealing the Burr warrant materials may have been driven by a Securities and Exchange Commission investigation that remained ongoing after the criminal probe was dropped. As of last May, the SEC's role wasn't public, but it emerged officially in October when the commission sought a court order in New York forcing Burr's brother-in-law, Gerald Fouth, to give a deposition in that inquiry. After hearing about 45 minutes of arguments Wednesday that were public through the audio feed streamed online, The judges had an exchange with the Justice Department lawyer in private to discuss aspects of Howell's ruling and the case that remained under seal. While judges did not rule immediately after the public session, it appeared likely the courts could remand the case to Howell with instructions to look at the issue again and explain her conclusion in more detail. Interesting. All right, with that, it's time for Sabotage. All right. Tom Barrick, longtime friend of Trump, on Monday filed a motion to dismiss the criminal case in federal court in Brooklyn, New York, arguing prosecutors had no proof he agreed to act as an agent of the UAE in trying to influence U.S. policy. (laughs) I can't even say it with a straight face. Uh, Barrick and his assistant, Matthew Grimes, who's 28 and he's 60-something or 70-something, they lived together. Matthew Grimes uh, pled not guilty to the charges in July. Grimes also moved to dismiss the case on Monday. Quote, Mr. Barrick was never an agent of the UAE, nor did he commit obstruction or make any false statements. That's defense lawyer Daniel Petricelli. in the filing that we're talking about. There is no basis whatsoever for the charges against Mr. Barrick, and the indictment should be dismissed in its entirety. Now, Barrick and Grimes were indicted last year along with a third defendant, UAE national Rashid Al Shahi, who remains at large, by the way, Barrick was released on 250 million dollars in bail, one of the largest in recent memory, uh, and and while Grimes posted five million in bond. Al Shahi was originally charged by the U.S. in a sealed criminal complaint in 2019. Prosecutors alleged Barrick and Grimes engaged in a years-long scheme to try to shape the Trump administration's foreign policy in directions favored by the UAE in part by developing a back-channel line of communication to U.S. officials. The UAE also tasked the men with trying to mold and influence public opinion through media appearances. This is fucking classic. Foreign agent. But Petricelli said there's no proof that Tom Barrick reached any agreement with UAE officials or received anything of value in return for acting on their behalf. Without such an agreement, prosecutors were criminalizing core First Amendment activity by his client. Mr. Barrick stands accused of crimes for voicing long-held views about the Middle East and communicating with its leaders. That's what Petricelli said. Grimes likewise argued that the government had no proof. He agreed to act for the UAE, pointing out that he was an employee of Colony during that period covered by the indictment. He quote was Colony's agent, not an agent of the UAE, and that's his defense attorney, Abby Lowell. And his activities fall under the definition of legal commercial transactions. Now, Mr. Barrick directed Mr. Grimes' activity, and Colony paid Mr. Grimes' salary. That's what Abby Lowell says. Consistent with this reality, the indictment does not allege and could not allege that Mr. Grimes ever took direction from or was controlled by the UAE. So he's saying, look, he worked for Barrick. He, he, he was paid by Barrick. He was following Barrick's orders. And then the other lawyer is saying, well, Barrick didn't take any, any orders from the UAE. So shit rolls uphill. Barrick's lawyers also said they received some highly exculpatory evidence just disclosed by the government, including two witnesses interviewed by federal investigators who directly refuted these allegations. According to Monday's filing, this evidence is irrefutably demonstrative that Mr. Barrick was not an agent of the UAE. The description of that evidence was among several sections redacted from this motion. Under a protective order covering information the government deems sensitive... Petricelli on Monday asked U.S. District Judge Brian Kogan for permission to file a release, uh, an unredacted motion to dismiss that would make evidence favorable to Barrick, uh, make it available to the public. He wants all this to be unredacted. Quote By unsealing the indictment in this case, the government has already chosen to disclose dozens of otherwise private text messages and internal government documents in an attempt to wrongly portray Mr. Barrick as a foreign agent. So it should not now be allowed to assert confidentiality regarding evidence of a similar character that strongly discredits those allegations. The public has a right to know the full story. Both Barrick and Grimes suggested politics may have played a role in their indictment. Barrick's lawyers raised questions about the timing of the charges against him, suggesting prosecutors waited until Trump was out of office. The indictment accused Barrick of lying about some of his activities in a June 2019 interview with the FBI and obstructing justice. Barrack's lawyer said the government could have charged those crimes instead of waiting another two years. In a second filing on Monday, Grimes asked to review information about the grand jury that indicted him to determine if bias may have played a role. Quote, This is undoubtedly a high-profile, politically charged case involving divisive political figures that garner significant media attention and evoke strong feelings of hate or adoration. And to eliminate those grand jurors who would indict Mr. Grimes based upon prejudice rather than the merits of the case... It would not have been difficult to voir dire all potential grand jurors. Given the individuals involved and the nature of the charges being sought, specific questions should have and could easily have been asked to elicit conscious and unconscious prejudices of the jurors concerning political affiliation, politics, and foreign influences. They wanted to voir dire the grand jury. (laughs) Barrack also disclosed his connections to foreign leaders in June 2017 when he considered joining the Trump administration. He submitted an application known as a Form SF-86. All government employees have to fill out an SF-86, and that's required for background investigations for people seeking sensitive national security positions. And that's actually incorrect. It's really for uh, anyone who wants to work for the government that needs a background investigation. It doesn't have to be sensitive national security positions. This application, quote, spanned hundreds of pages and disclosed Mr. Barrack's contacts with foreign leaders, uh, including the very UAE individuals referenced in the indictment. Mr. Barrick was extensively interviewed by U.S. State Department investigators about these contacts and interactions. But to insinuate that an SF-86 satisfies the requirement of registering as a foreign agent with the Department of Justice is fucking stupid. Okay, I'm just going to go out and say it. Now, Barrack stepped down as chairman of Colony Capital in March and formed a new venture, Falcon Peak Partners. Sounds like an 80s nighttime soap opera. The indictment came just as he inked the first series of deals he planned to pursue in the hospitality, leisure, and entertainment industries. He uh, had said sovereign wealth funds and family offices in the Middle East would be co-investors. But we didn't get anything for pushing the UAE. Shit with Trump. We didn't get anything. There was no reward. We weren't an agent for the UAE because there was no agreement and there was no reward. But he had just penned a bunch of deals where uh, people in the Middle East would be co-investors. Okay. Kogan had directed the trial to begin September 7th with jury selection. Prosecutors have until February 28th to respond to Tom Barrick's motion, and you know I'll bring it to you. And with that, it's time for the fantasy indictment league. I'm gonna be indicted! No, wait, it's going to be okay. Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! Honey. I'm, I'm going to be indicted. Hold it, can It's going to be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm going to be a Michael Avenatti was convicted Friday of wire fraud and aggravated identity theft for stealing from Stormy Daniels. Prosecutors allege that Avenatti, who helped negotiate the $800,000 advance for Daniels' October 2018 book, Full Disclosure, defrauded his former client by instructing her literary agent to send two of the installments of the advance totaling nearly $300,000 to an account controlled by him rather than Stormy Daniels, without her knowledge. Speaking to cameras outside the courthouse in Lower Manhattan, Avenatti said he's very disappointed in the verdict. Now, in February 2020, Avenatti was convicted in New York for attempting to extort millions of dollars from Nike by threatening to publicly claim that Nike was illicitly paying amateur basketball players. He was sentenced last July to 30 months in prison, for which he's expected to report to a federal prison work camp, in Oregon. I wonder if he'll be doing like the running the running the library, because he's a smart lawyerly type guy. Hmm. <laughs> Avenatti still faces a second trial in California, where he has been charged with tax fraud and bank fraud, and he has pled not guilty there as well. And with that, it is time to draft my team this week. I'm gonna I'm gonna mix it up a little bit. I'm gonna draft Gates, LA Key, and Engels. I'm gonna leave the rest of the crew off of there from Florida because I want to add superseding indictments for Tom Barrack and Grimes, unless they cooperate, of course, might be a plea deal. I'd also like to put Rudy and Tonesig on there. And then, of course, the Trump organization at a Manhattan DA's office. And you know what? Superseding Parnas and Fruman, or just Parnas and Fruman indictments, because they were indicted on other stuff, not what was going on with Ukraine, which is what's being investigated in the Rudy situation. And as we know... Barbara Jones just handed over the last of everything to the Department of Justice. She's the special master who is going through all of the seized um, items and documents and and phones that were seized from Rudy in April of last year. She just handed all that shit over. So I think Parnas and Fruman could be in trouble. All right, everybody. Thank you again for all your support as we move off Spotify. It's going to take a little bit to get off of there, so you have some time to go and subscribe on Apple or Google Play, or wherever you want to get your podcasts. Or you can grab a premium feed at, at patreon.com slash wrote three bucks a month. Uh, there's also an episode of the MSW Book Club out today. Check it out. We're going over Corruptible by Brian Kloss. And I'll be back tomorrow morning on The Daily Beans with Dana Goldberg, who will be joining me from New York, because she has a show there on February 9th. We'll talk about that then. And until we talk, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been A.G., S. W. Okay. Media.